Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality one topic at a time. This is Increase the Reality with Shane Jones. What is up, inquirers, and welcome to the fascinating chronicles of my inquiries into this reality. As many of you know, cryptozoology and folklore are two of my favorite topics to talk about, but due to the nature of both, they tend to get out there as far as theories go. It's not too often you get to talk to someone who combines the two with a solid base of biology to explain some of this weird phenomenon as far as cryptids go, but today's guest definitely has all bases covered. But before we get into that, of course... I got some news and updates for you guys. Um, I will be vending at Squonkapalooza, which will be August 26, 2023, um, in Central Park, downtown Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, it is a free event. It's going to be happening from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., rain or shine. Uh, there's going to be a lot of really cool stuff going on there as far as vendors, artists, crafts, games, speakers, movies, activities, live music, food trucks, and cosplay. So, uh, if you guys are able to make it out, definitely uh, come and say hi to me over at my table. Um, if anybody is coming out, it'd be really cool if you guys wouldn't mind uh, making some type of contact so I know that you guys are coming. Then at least I'll know your guys' faces and names so I can point at you guys and say, hey, I know that guy. And uh, I literally will do that. If you guys want me to do that, I will point at you and I will make it as weird as possible and pretend like I know you and dance around and I'll make it weird. It'll be fun. But uh, that's one event that's going to be happening. So I hope to see you guys there, of course. But moving on in front of the house, if you guys haven't already reviewed or rated the show on Spotify or iTunes, it'd be really awesome if you guys wouldn't mind doing that. It's a good way to help the show get seen by some more people. And of course, if you guys give the show a five-star review on iTunes, um, I will read on the show, give you guys a shout out. That's always fun. I love reading those. So hopefully nothing negative and you guys throw me some more uh, positive reviews my way. It's been a little bit since I've gotten a review or rating for the show. So anything you guys throw, definitely appreciate it. Uh, if you guys aren't already following the show on social media, highly recommend that you go and do that. Uh, we are now active on YouTube and TikTok. If you guys are interested in going and checking that content out, um, I'll be posting some more new video content, be it clips of the shows, uh, some recent pictures that I had posted from a paranormal investigation that I had recently been on. Um, there's always going to be some more cool stuff. I'm always trying to expand the video content over there. So go and check it out. Uh, if you guys want to pop into the telegram or the discord, have some awesome conversations with some awesome people, uh, still in the process of building those up. So anybody hopping in, it's more appreciated than I can ever say. So 
do me the solid, pop in, even if you're just kind of bouncing here and there for conversations, any little bit thrown in, interacting, always helps, always great. And you guys rock for it, of course. Uh, if anybody wants to be a guest on the show, whether you're an author, researcher, cryptozoologist, experiencer, contactee, UFOologist, uh, whistleblower, any of that, any open-minded individual, I want to sit down, I want to have a conversation with you. So don't hesitate to shoot me a message because I'd love to get you on the show. You guys can, of course, shoot me a message on Instagram, which is the one that I'm the most active on as far as social media goes. Or you guys can email me at inquiriesallrealitypodcast.outlook.com. Or you guys can go to the link tree, fill the submission form. That'll go directly to my email. And uh, make sure you check your spam or junk folders. Make sure nothing gets missed because more often than not, it seems like a lot of stuff gets pushed that way just because of me sending out links for the show. They just assume I'm spam. So make sure nothing gets missed because I do respond to every single email and message that you guys send me. Um, you guys listen to the show. You guys interact with me. The least I can do, of course, is respond to you guys. So don't worry about me not responding because I will respond. Just make sure that the message doesn't get missed, of course. And uh, if you guys enjoy the content I do, you guys can always go and check out Bizarre Encounters, my uh other show that I do with my two awesome co-hosts, Orin and Jenny, uh, deep diving into bizarre encounters, just like the title says, uh, talking about paranormal, uh, UFOs, aliens, cryptids, all that fun stuff, uh, all died from our perspective. Also some interviews get thrown in there. Some encounters get thrown in there. It's a really fun show. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Um, it's a little bit more comical than this show. Yes, we make some jokes here and there on this show, but over there, uh, we tend to let it get off the rails just cause it's fun. Um, mainly in the intro and stuff, you know, if we have a serious guest on, we'll keep it a little bit more serious, but when we're doing our dives, we have some fun with it, but I think you guys will really enjoy that. If you guys enjoy this show and uh, if you guys want to keep tabs on all the things that I do, you guys can of course go and check out open minds media. Uh, that is what I keep the YouTube, uh, the TikTok, and I do have a profile for it on Instagram. And I use that to mainly post everything for all the shows all in one place. So if you guys don't go follow Bizarre Encounters and Increase of All Reality, at least go follow Open Minds Media and keep updated on all of the different content that I'm putting out. And uh, if you guys want to support the show, there's a couple different ways to do so. Uh, as far as this show goes, uh, there is a Patreon for Open Minds Media, which is Bizarre Encounters and this show all coordinated into one place. So you don't just get one show, you get two shows. So it's a little bit more bang for your buck. And that also includes any other shows that I may put out in the future. Uh, there's multiple tiers over there. Um, all of them have different perks. Uh, some of those perks include ad-free episodes, uh, live access to episodes, live replays of episodes, which is the video format of the episodes. Uh, there's also exclusive merch store discounts. And of course, it's always expanding. So if you guys have anything that you guys would love to see for the Patreon, just let me know. I'd love to incorporate it and give you guys exactly what you want as far as that goes. Uh, you guys can also donate to the show directly through Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, uh, or Red Circle, which is the RSS host for the show. Um, if you guys donate anything to the show, if it doesn't give you some type of option to leave a personalized message, uh, shoot me a message. Let me know that you guys donated because I'd love to give you guys a shout out on the show. Give appreciation where appreciations do, of course. Uh, the third way you guys can support the show is through the Open Minds Media merch store. Uh, there you're going to find designs for all of the different things that stay under the Open Minds Media category. Um, I will be dropping some new designs pretty soon on there. Um, I might even start incorporating some other cryptid designs that may not necessarily be pertaining to either show, but just my own little series of different merch designs I want to do. So keep tabs over there. Check it out. Let me know what you guys like. Um, let me know what you guys don't like, and then I can kind of coordinate the store accordingly. If you guys haven't already, don't forget to go and check out Crypto Theology also. There you'll find yourself a bunch of awesome cryptid merchandise, uh, paranormal merchandise, UFO merchandise. Uh, a lot of really, really cool stuff. Joe's always dropping some new stuff, a lot of really cool parody designs. So if you haven't already checked it out or seen me posting the shirts that I'm always wearing on Instagram, I highly recommend that you do because I guarantee you guys will find something that you like there. And uh, just a little PSA I want to throw out here as far as uh, supporting podcasts. Uh, if anybody has a podcast that they love, there's 
a few different ways to support the podcast. There's ways that you can support the podcast by spending nothing, and there's ways that you guys can support the podcast by throwing a little bit towards it. Uh, keep in mind that producing a podcast isn't always free, but we do love doing this kind of stuff for you guys. So if you guys can't throw anything back as far as that goes, uh, you guys can always leave a review. That's an awesome thing to do. Uh, tell somebody about your favorite podcast. Uh, you guys can also set auto download on any of your podcast catcher apps, and that way it'll get tallied as a listen, even if you guys haven't listened to it. So it's an awesome way to help us uh, keep boosting and promoting the show. Uh, you guys can also just email us, say thanks for producing the podcast. Uh, we definitely all dig doing that. And uh, I'm not just saying that for this show. I'm saying for any podcast you guys enjoy, give a little bit of love and appreciation back to the people that you know try to keep you guys entertained for free for the most part. And uh, if you guys want to support our work and make it so that all of us awesome podcasters might have eventually be able to do this full time and uh, just be able to produce just nonstop awesome content for you guys. Uh, you guys, of course, can always support Patreons. You guys can make donations to the show. Uh, you guys can buy merchandise from the merch stores. Uh, you guys could always try out some of the sponsors that somebody might have on the show. For example, you know, going and picking yourself up a t-shirt from Crypto Theology is always a plus. Um, I don't necessarily make anything off of that, but it's just... I love Joe's work. I really want to support him as much as I can. And uh, anything that I can push his way just makes me feel good because I just really love the stuff that he puts out. And I don't see anybody else out here that's doing stuff like him. So even that can extend past podcasters, of course. And uh, this isn't necessarily pertaining to this show, but I know there's a lot of podcasters out there that do live events. Um, If you guys just make the time to buy a ticket to go to the live events, that's a great way to support the shows. But there's endless ways to support the show, whether you want to actually incorporate money and spend something or not. But don't forget to support all of your favorite podcasts in some way, shape, or form. Even interacting with the podcast, going on to the Instagram, uh, interacting in the Telegram or the Discords, like it means the world to us. So anything you guys do, again, more than appreciated. Just a little PSA I want to put out there as far as uh, everybody that's listening to the show. Don't forget to support everybody that you guys enjoy listening to. And uh, everything that I mentioned, of course, all available under the link tree, which is available down in the show description. And with that, let's get into the show. Please welcome to the show, biologist Pat Spain. How's it going today, man? Hey, doing all right. How about yourself? Not too bad. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I got to dig into a little bit of your work and I found it absolutely fascinating. And I thought that the listeners really enjoy hearing all of the fascinating stuff that you've dug into through your, I don't want to say many years, but years of doing all the research that you've been into. <laughs> it's many years. I got the grace to prove it. Man. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> hey, when man, I'm not too far behind you, though. So, I mean, we're, we're going to ignore the grace because I, I know I got something some, hidden underneath this hat somewhere. So <laughs> there, there, there is a lot. It's uh, I, I've been doing this bad now. Um, 20 years, 20 years now. So since I did my first TV show. Um, so yeah, it's pretty wild, but I love it. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Um, I love getting people excited about wildlife and getting them thinking about what else could be out there. And, um, and also thinking about different cultures and different places in the world that maybe they've never gotten to. So I have a good time with it. Oh, I already can tell this is going to be a great conversation because folklore is one of my personal favorite things to dig into on top of cryptid. So I think both of us can be in the same wheelhouse on this one. It's going to be awesome. But before, of course, we can get super duper into the really cool research that you've done, uh, for anybody that's not familiar with who you are, what you do, and all of your work, why don't you kind of give them an idea about who you are? 
Sure, absolutely. So um, my name's Pat Spain, and I, I've, I've been the host of a, a few different um, wildlife and adventure TV shows. So I did Beast Hunter on the National Geographic Channel, Legend Hunter on um, Travel Channel, and then I've done some other stuff for Animal Planet, BBC, Sci-Fi, um, and a few others here and there. Um, and I've also just written six books, and there are six books on um, wildlife adventures and cryptozoology. So that each one is centered around, well, five of the six are centered around a different cryptid in a different um, bizarre location <laughs> all over the world and the kind of crazy adventures that you get in when you're, when you're looking for them with a National Geographic film crew. So the books are really uh, showcasing me as kind of a fish out of water in all of these situations. They're kind of darkly funny travelogues. It's, um, it's just the really absurd situations that I found myself in. And I would absolutely love to dig into each of those. But also, too, before we uh, get into all of the super duper really cool stuff, um, of course, I got to ask, what, what got you into what you do? What, what kind of led you down the path that you're on? Because, you know, for everybody that's interested in certain things, I always try to kind of steer them towards the path on what other people take because maybe they can make their dreams come true using the same thing. But I always like to kind of get a premise of how people exactly fall into the shoes that they're in currently. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I have always been obsessed with animals. So I was the little kid who was, you know, while my friends are playing baseball, I would, you know, they put me in the outfield and I would sit down and start to catch snakes and dig up worms and like not pay any attention to the game at all. And even as an adult, um, I had a bunch of friends try to take me golfing and I would just wander off and find a pond somewhere <laughs> catching frogs and stuff as an adult. So as the kid, um, you know, who's, who's there doing this kind of stuff, you tend to get a crowd gathered around you, like when you're holding a rattlesnake snake in the middle of a field or something. And I found that I liked that. I liked um, teaching people about wildlife. Uh, the, the weirder, the better, the creepier and crawlier, the ones that people have a lot of misconceptions about. I love going to the ocean and finding a horseshoe crab. And, you know, as a child, having an adult tell me like, oh, don't touch that because it's going to sting you. And being able to explain like, no, actually, these don't sting. It's one of the most harmless animals in the world. And, uh, you know, kind of helping people to overcome their fears or their misconceptions of, uh, of these animals. Because oftentimes those fears and misconceptions lead to some really bad things for the animals. <laughs> so I found that really rewarding. And um, I wanted to continue that. So I went to school for marine biology because uh, that was the, where the biggest mysteries were in my mind. The deep ocean had the most unexplored, unexplained things. I mean, you know, think about in the 80s. Like, there were still so many things. They had just found the megamouth shark a few years before. Um, there were so many things coming out. You know, no footage had ever been seen of the giant squid. Um, just crazy things down there. So that's what I went to school for. When I graduated uh, with a degree in marine biology, I realized that biologist street performer doesn't really pay the bills too well. <laughs> didn't at the time at least <laughs> so i went into biotech and that was my um that's that's my day job i'm very very appreciative of of everything i feel such a connection to patients and love that i'm able to do that but i've always kept on the side this um this kind of passion that i have for wildlife education and um cryptozoology so when you're talking weird animals what's weirder than a cryptid you know something that may or may not even be there and my minor in college was uh, philosophy with a cultural anthropology focus. So that's folklore, mm -hmm. essentially. And that 
in my mind, that is what cryptozoology is. Cryptozoology is a mix of anthropology and biology. So that's exactly what I'm looking for. And I started doing um, some wildlife shows. I auditioned for a show on Animal Planet and did this series. Then I started filming my own wildlife show and putting it up on YouTube. And after six years of doing that and spending a stupid amount of money <laughs> getting myself crazy in debt, I finally got a couple calls from networks to, hey, maybe you want to do this um, and we'll actually pay you for it rather than have you paid for it. And I've done um, you know, a bunch of them here and there, but I, I just love it. So uh, just a quick little question too, for anybody that might not be familiar with what biotech is exactly, uh, why don't you kind of give them an idea about what that is exactly? Yeah, so it, it's making um, pharmaceuticals. Gotcha. Like bi biopharmaceuticals. And then uh, as far as cryptids go, this is kind of like the field that I tackle it from. And I appreciate the way that you're coming at it, um, at least for me, because I dig into a lot of the cryptid stuff with like Bizarre Encounters, my other show I do. Um, I always kind of like date stuff back with folklore as far as like weird encounters go. And mm -hmm. for me, at least, I feel like it kind of turned into a thing about playing telephone in the aspect of somebody saw something weird. And because of just years and years of oral tradition, ended up turning into this like crazy story about this, uh, you know, serpent being that was like a god when originally there may have just been giant serpents that were still left over from like the prehistoric age. Um, but for me, at least when I try to tackle this kind of stuff, I feel like there's still some type of base of truth in folklore. That's why it was created in the first place. And then I try to connect it with not as much like the woo woo concept, but try to like ground it into like rational thought on what could actually exist in the area. And I'm assuming that's probably the same way that you kind of tackle stuff, right? That's the exact approach. That's the exact approach that I take. Yeah. So it's looking at what, what's the kernel of truth behind this. Why is this story important? Why has it persisted for all these years? Like what, what purpose is it serving within this, uh, within this community? And um, what are the what are the known animals that are around here that that exhibit some of the traits that people are attributing to these cryptids? Uh, but also, you know, if if there is a chance that this animal is real, you know, which and and real being the key word. So uh, one of the I'll, I'll jump into that in a minute. But if this animal is real. Um, you know, where, where could it be and what, um, how could it be being supported? Like, how could this biologically uh, exist in the area that we're describing? And when I say, um, you know, real and that, that's kind of a whole separate topic, I think that this is one of the biggest issues with cryptozoology. Um, because if, let's say, the, let's take the Yeti. So if we found a new species of bear in the Himalayas, that exhibited a lot of the traits of the Yeti. You know, it, it traveled in the same patterns that people talk about the Yeti going, you know, up to higher elevations at certain point of years, down into valleys during other points in the year, um, eating the same food sources. As a biologist, I would be psyched. I would say, this is amazing. We found this new species of bear that people didn't know was there. Most of the public would go, yeah, but it's not the Yeti. <laughs> There's still a Yeti out there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still out there. It's still, and, that, and that's exactly it. So that's the, that's the problem that I have with cryptozoology. I do consider myself a cryptozoologist. I love it. I have no, like, you know, there, there's nothing like this isn't a knock to, the, to the, um, the researchers out there at all. But it's just I think people are too tied to the concept of um, I need to find the exact animal that we want it to be. And if you don't find that, then you haven't found, you haven't explained what this is. And I think that's unfortunate because there are a lot of really cool things to find, even if they don't perfectly meet your explanation of uh, what you're hoping it is. I mean, even to take into consideration, too, just the fact that if people see something that isn't typical in the area, they try to, it's that fear state. You end up, ex like, 
seeing certain things that will be that'll stick out to you more like something might just have like standard sharp teeth but because you're in that fear state you're going to start seeing giant teeth and one of the prime examples of this that I'd like to kind of throw at you is uh, some of my research that I did is uh, the Beast of Bladenborough, which was this supposed cat that would kill dogs, any other small animals, and they would crush the skulls. And for me, my logic kind of connecting into it is the fact that back then it was a common place thing to have hyenas as pets as far as families go. So when they started making laws about all that kind of stuff, people just started randomly like releasing all their hyenas so they didn't have anything connected to them. And hyenas are known to have a really, really strong bite. So they're able to crush the skulls of other animals, especially when they're working in packs. So everybody likes the whole concept of the beast of Bladenborough, but at least for me, connecting it with just different things in history and biological factors with hyenas, uh, I legitimately think that that whole beast of Bladenborough wasn't one specific animal. I think it was actually a pack of hyenas. And again, that's one of those things that you can throw that idea all day long. People may take it into consideration, but like you said, it's not the beast of Bladenborough. People are still going to be looking for that, even if that is the most logical answer of what that whole phenomenon was in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. And that makes a lot of sense. And that that would be exciting to me because exactly what you're describing, you know, that that it all connects together. Like, here's the reasons why there were a pack of hyenas wandering around mm-hmm. in a place where you wouldn't expect them to be. And what else did it do to the uh, to, to the local population? You know, was there was there any chance of them breeding? Did they have any? Were there any young that were seen at any point? You know, even if it wasn't a sustainable population, how long did they last for? Um, how did they behave? How did they respond to the new, you know, environmental factors and stuff? So there would be fascinating questions from that. But you're right; people would go, "Yeah, but it's still not what I want it to be." <laughs> so. So we're going to kind of discount that. And and that is unfortunate. But those legends spring about, and I love them. So I live in New England. And one of the things that you hear from people all the time are um, fisher cats. There's fisher cats. And I I see fisher cats in my yard pretty regularly. They're like, oh, aren't you worried about them attacking your kids and attacking your, your, your pets and, you know, slicing your throat open? It's like, no, fisher cats are great. I love seeing them there. And they don't scream. Like, there's this whole like myth and you will talk to old time New Englanders who insist that they have heard fisher cats screaming and they, you know, it, what they're hearing is either red foxes or um, red foxes or owls and, uh, you know, maybe rabbits, but fisher cats are almost silent. They really just make very, you know, light noise, like small noises. They're not this like screaming in the night and they're not these bloodthirsty, massive killers <laughs> that you find around. But that, that's what all of my neighbors and everyone around here seems to think. It's kind of reminds me of that thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've, you've definitely dug into Sasquatch, but a lot of people will talk about all the different like whoops and everything. And I mean, there's always the explanation that, you know, it just might be just those animals and there might just be a little bit off. Maybe they just didn't get like a full breath as they're trying to make the noise. And it's just a weird time placement. Or there's the other side of it that there isn't giant ape creature in the woods that I, in my opinion, just mimic sounds for fun. Cause what else is there to do out in the woods besides just mimic everything around you? But I mean, as far as like your research goes, I'm sure you've kind of dug into it. What's kind of like your opinion on that whole phenomenon with uh, Sasquatch making mimicked sounds of other things? I mean, even throwing in the fact that they do car door noises sometimes. I've heard from a few different stories. I I will answer that. But one of my favorite like animals mimicking a thing is uh, there there is a bird in. Oh, God, I'm going to get it wrong. It's either in India or in Brazil. And I know those are two vastly different (laughs) places. But there is a bird that has started doing um, the Nokia ringtone. And that's now their preferred call. 
So you, you'll be wandering in the middle of a forest and all of a sudden hear the Nokia ringtone from like the mid 2000s. What is happening? And um, that is a legit occurrence. So I, I love that. I just think that's great. So um, Sasquatch, I, I have a very unfortunate answer for Sasquatch. That is that although I have, I've looked at it, I've looked at some of the evidence, um, I, I haven't found any... I haven't found any of the physical evidence compelling enough to say that I, I'm firmly in the camp of a believer. But there's a lot of Sasquatch researchers out there that I really respect. You know, Jeff Meldrum and uh, Cliff Brockman and the, these guys, I, I believe when they tell me that these are, you know, th that they have found physical evidence, that this is a true, um, you know, account of what people are seeing. Um, I also... You know, Darren Nash is one of my favorite authors and, and just a great guy in general. And I think that he has, he seems to have fallen on the side of it's, it's extraordinarily unlikely that Bigfoot is there. Um, and I would say that I'm almost to that side. Um, it's very unlikely, but I'm still open to the possibility. Um, the mimicking the sounds, yeah, we see it in nature. We see other animals that do that. Um, you know, the bird that I mm -hmm. gave the example of, but we do see primates do that as well, um, kind of mimicking different sounds that they hear. And uh, you see that with, you know, ones that have a lot of interaction with humans. So I, I do think that it's possible that there is a creature that could be mimicking those noises. Um, I do think that there are the, um, what are they called? The ones from California where it almost sounds like talking, like the samurai speak, I think they call it or something. The Sierra sounds that were recorded yeah, by Ron Moorhead? That is wild. That is, I don't have any kind of good explanation for for that. And I've, I've met Ron and it, it, I don't, I don't feel that it's a hoax. Um, so that would really be the only explanation that I could come up with other than this is, this is legit. This is something that, um, that, that they recorded that that's kind of this kind of unknown species. Um, so yeah, I'm still, I'm still on the fence leaning towards it's very unlikely, but open to the possibility. And I would love to see some real DNA evidence. You know, now that we have eDNA, I feel like if we don't, get some evidence from eDNA in the next you know, five years or so, I'm going to fall a little bit further along that path of, unfortunately, maybe it was there pretty recently, but not anymore. See, that's kind of where I kind of question and wonder too, is that there's endless native stories about there being these things. There's, I mean, it even goes into Australia with the Yowie, goes into the Himalayas with the Yeti. I yes, definitely think that there may have been some type of creature that may have existed. Maybe there's a possibility that they are extinct now or they are going extinct and they're only in specific areas. And that's why people are having so much trouble finding them. But it seems like the story was so prevalent that there was some type of amount of truth to it, be it that it was just a, you know, some type of primate that may not have had all of these like natural mystical powers like people try to throw on it, but it, it's based in something. Like there was something kind of weird going on. And one other thing that I kind of like to throw in, at least for North America, is that we know that there was the giant sloths. Um, I wonder how many natives may have just seen giant sloths out in the woods and then created all of this folklore based around these big things that they thought were like giant ape men, but realistically they're just giant sloths walking around the woods. Yeah, and that's the the whole Mapinguari angle, right? So the the Mapinguari, some people say it's Bigfoot, some people say it's it's a giant sloth. I do fall into the giant sloth camp completely with the Mapinguari. I did have the opportunity to go to Brazil and research that, and I believe I heard one one night. 
Um, I do think that they, they are still there. Um, that's the one that I, I come down on and I go, yeah, yeah. I, I went into it thinking, I went into the research thinking that it was mistaken identity and it was this great folklore story. It was, you know, the, the superhero of the rainforest, the protector of the rainforest. Um, but I left really believing that there, there are still giant ground sloths in, uh, in some of the forests in Brazil. Oh, and that stuff is so deep and thick too that those things could be up in trees. People are walking past them and wouldn't even see them necessarily because you you can't see the tops of the trees in the rainforest. And who knows how high up those things could be. These would be the ground dwelling ones that would be um, you know pretty large. But but what happens with the, the really interesting thing about that region of Brazil? So in order to to meet with two of the tribes that I um, that I stayed with while I was down there, we had to get permission from the um, from the Brazilian government. So you had to get special visas. You had to have a health exam to prove that we we weren't carrying any communicable diseases that could be passed to them. And these are contacted tribes. So these are you know it's it's not. Um, it's not uncommon for them to see Westerners. Um, it's not a common occurrence, but it's not uncommon either. If you go a couple miles further, you would get to uncontacted tribes, tribes that have absolutely no interaction with the Western world at all, and that we we couldn't go to even if we wanted to. Like this would be a crime punishable by you know very severe penalties, even jail time, if we were to go any further into the rainforest. And those tribes have legends that were told to, to me about the Mapinguari and about um, essentially if they hear, if they hear or see it, they have to leave the area and never go back. Take their entire village and move away from that area and never go back. So giant ground sloths were hunted to extinction by humans. But if there's this one region of the world has these legends and these tri- and these um, stories that essentially protect the animals and they have to leave the area, they're creating a wildlife preserve for this creature without intending to. And there would be no environmental pressure. There would be nothing else that would have caused them to die off because humans didn't kill them in this area. So that's how I think that they've survived. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't even try to make that connection. It's like an unintentional preserving of the area through folklore. So it makes you wonder, again, if it was one of those things that somebody was scared of it and started a story, or if somebody intentionally like knew that these things were in small numbers, so they started the folklore and story to keep people away from the area because they full well knew that they were trying to preserve this animal. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, you know, how how much... How much foresight did they have? How much was it based on? Yeah, no, that's that's a fascinating angle that I hadn't considered. I love it. I mean, just since we're on this topic, and uh, I'm sure you probably dug into this too, because I find this one fascinating because there's countless stories on this. Uh, what, how do you feel about the rock apes from Vietnam? What do you think is like the probability of something existing like that, even if it isn't necessarily like an intelligent ape, but just some type of ape that hangs out on the ground and throws rocks at soldiers when they see them? <laughs> yeah, so so my, my wife is Vietnamese. And um, I've asked her parents about that. And, you know, when, um, when I was doing Beast Hunter, we were planning a season two and we were planning to go to Vietnam for the Rocky. And um, her father got very, very nervous and just told me not to do it. He was just like, don't do that. Don't go after them. And I was like, so they're there? He was like, just please don't go after them. <laughs> and that gave me pause. I mean, this is a guy that I've known him for, you know, 20 something years. And I really respect, um, you know, what he knows about his country and the animals that he knows about in his country. And he, you know, he, 
he seemed to indicate he wasn't going to say right there that they are definitely there, but he knew enough about the region to say like, no, stay away from that. Like, don't, don't mess with that. So I do think that there's something to it. Um, I think that in Sumatra, um, I did have the chance to investigate Orang Pendek. And I do believe that there, you know, Lauren Coleman probably gets it right when he says that there's more than one species mm-hmm. of, uh, that people are describing as a ring pendek. Um, one probably more human-like and one probably more gibbon-like, but ground-dwelling apes. And um, I think that if they're not there, they were there very recently. And Mike Morewood, who's the guy that found um, Homo floresiensis. He is the one who discovered and named Homo floresiensis, you know, the Hobbit mm-hmm. uh, people. The, yeah, so he, I met with him, and he said that he had found evidence. He's like, it's not enough to publish in a scientific journal, but I have found evidence that they were there, Homo floresiensis, was there at least until the 1920s. And, I mean, That's they know for a fact that there's still that solid evidence, but, I mean, even if they all, if there, there was enough of a group that they were able to make that solid evidence, but even, like, 50 years later, there could still easily be little remnants left in specific Absolutely. areas. Yeah, and he, so this is one of the one of the best, you know, um, in one of, the, one of the top scientists in his field in the entire world, and I said, well, do you think that either... Floresiensis, or maybe an Orangpendek-like creature, could still be somewhere in Indonesia. And he thought about it for a minute, and he was like, "Well, what are there? You know, how many thousands of islands are there? How many of them are are completely unpopulated?" Yeah, I don't see why not. <laughs> I was like, "Whoa! All right, I got to get back to Indonesia." <laughs> I mean, it's even one of those things, too, that we're always discovering new little offshoots of human-like species of things. So, I mean, like, who knows how many more there could be discovered. That could could be where the intelligence factor comes in, is that they were this in-between spot where they weren't on the roll to become a human, but they are maybe a little bit more close to the primate side than the human side. And they're just a subsectioned area where they've only been interbreeding with their own species for the past 50, 60 years. So they're actually like keeping their DNA, how it is solid without it progressing into a new form of like another human type of DNA. I mean, there could be a bunch of groups like that. That's Island dwarfism and Island gigantism. Um, that's what that's what you see when when a population becomes isolated and depending on the resources available and you, you will see populations of creatures like Indonesia used to have tiny elephants you know it was a it was a, an example of island dwarfism where you know they had these little elephants that were the size of dogs <laughs> and then you had island gigantism with you know komodo dragons and things that were even bigger than komodo dragons lizards that were even larger than present day komodo dragons so you did see both examples island dwarfism and island gigantism in the same region and indonesia seems to be a prime spot for that so a species of tiny humans is not out of the question as weird as that sounds <laughs> And I mean, that's seen through a bunch of stuff. Like you got the uh, Menahuni, for example, in Hawaii, that they're, the people that were there talk about all these structures that they built, that there's no explanation to them. Like the, that one fishing pond that they created, like almost any island chain has folklore of miniature people existing there. And yes. it, it's universal. So it sounds crazy and woo-woo when you think about it for one specific location. But when you start digging into it internationally and realize that every single island has a group of these, I mean, it doesn't sound so much like a cryptid anymore. It just sounds like that was the the niche that needed to be fit for that area until more humans ended up coming to that area and, you know, spreading like the taller genes from wherever the hell they came from. Because obviously the Polynesian weren't in the Hawaiian Islands forever. They came from somewhere else and they moved up there. You know, mm-hmm. the original people of that area, the Menahuni, could have literally been miniature people, miniature apes. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I lived with two different pygmy tribes in West Africa as well. And although it's not an island, it's isolated by geographical features and by, um, you know, just the, the difficulty to get into the forest. So you, you do have an isolated genetic population. And again, we saw humans get smaller. Um, the, the tribes that I was with, the, the Baka, the Aka people, the Baka and the Bayaka, collectively called the Aka, um, were shockingly small. I mean, it was you know, a, a full-grown adult that, you know, until you really started to look at all of the facial characteristics and everything else, looked like a very small child. I mean, you even kind of see that even with, like, modern day, for example, not to get, like, too into the details as far as, like, ethnicity goes, but, like, people from Japan, people from Indonesia, just naturally they're known for being smaller people. So it's still seen even within, like, the common people of these areas that they are smaller. So just the idea of there being even smaller people isn't out there once you start actually connecting all the dots together. Yeah, it, it, it's, again, it's just that um, that seems to be the way that humans go when there's an isolated population, you know, some, some, you know, and it seems to be the way that elephants went as well. There was, you know, the, um, the dwarfism as opposed to, you know, gigantism where, you know, the lizards seem to get much larger and, you know, some birds seem to get much larger when they're in an isolated population. So we do see that. You also see it in the deepest parts of the ocean. They talk about um, abysmal gigantism and abysmal dwarfism where uh, different, you know, if a species adapts to life in the, in the depths, it seems to grow either huge or get really, really tiny. I mean, it and seems yes. like it probably works the same way for islands and stuff in the aspect of one, you either become smaller so that you have more range, more food, so it creates more resources by making it so that you're a smaller person, or you have the aspect if there's giant predators, that's when you start seeing gigantism because you need to ha be bigger in order to take care of these predators. But I mean, even so, you could even adapt to be smaller because it's easier to get away from bigger predators when you have smaller little caverns and stuff you can fit into that these big predators can't. Yeah. And Evolution you hear stories with the Menahuni, for example, where they disappear near the ground. That's what everybody that talks about them says. So, I mean, it totally would make sense that these guys ended up adapting to stay under the ground, and that's why they became small, so it's easier for them to burrow and make habitats under the ground so that they can stay safe from bigger animals. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, I mean, this has already been great, and I want to dig into uh, some of your books that you put out, because I'm sure it's probably along the same lines of connecting... Uh, cryptids with uh with folklore so yeah. you know I'd, I'd love to actually be able to kind of dive into each one of the little topics that you've talked about in all your books sure absolutely yeah so um so as i said six books and uh five of them are about different cryptids and one of them is about uh, how i got into doing all this stuff and um like just the the general yeah, just generally getting into all of this. And then, unfortunately, right after I finished filming Beast Hunter, I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. And then it's about, like, the book is all about the journey of that. And um, I do like to say that it's a cancer comedy. So there aren't too many of them out there. But this, I try to keep it on, the, like, I, I explain the exact reality, the horrors of what it's really like. But, you know, there's also some funny sides, uh, bizarrely. So that, that's one of the books. But then the other ones, yeah, it's, it's um, Mokelium Bembe, Sea Serpents, the Mongolian Death Worm, Orang Pendek, and the Mopinguari. Ooh, I, well, first of all, let me make the comment of the fact that you wrote these six books while dealing with the whole cancer thing. And the fact that you wrote a book about it that kind of just lightened the mood about it. Like, that's 
it's 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 an awesome thing to be able to do and it's one of those things that it's it's such a dark thing for people that are involved in it that it, it's needed to be able to just make a little bit of a joke out of it and it's one of those things that you can't do that unless you've been there so it's awesome that you are one of those people that took that opportunity to be able to fill that that void that i feel was needed um that not a lot of people were able to do so props to you for being able to do that and the fact that you're able to knock out all these books while dealing with that like that's that's absolutely amazing thank you very much thank you yeah no it does feel good it's uh it's uh, it was crazy. Like the 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 way that I kind of showed myself that I was back, um, like that I could still be myself and I still could do all of this stuff, was I convinced two of my friends to drive thirty three hours up to Manitoba, Canada, and lay down in a pit of two hundred thousand snakes. And that was my uh, that was my questionable coping mechanism <laughs> to deal with cancer. So. That was it. Like I did that and I was like, all right, if I can do this, then I'm good to go and I can, I can still be myself and I can still, you know, recover from this and come back from it. And, uh, that's, that's, that's the book. It's 200,000 snakes is the name of the book. Well, I'm glad that you're able to keep a positive mindset through it too. Cause I mean, I've had actually recently, um, two people in, well, my girlfriend's family that passed away from cancer, but it was just a very specific rare type of cancer. So it's just, it's a really touchy subject, but I'm, Again, happy that you're able to do what you're able to do with it. And it's always a wonderful thing to see people recover, especially with just the track record of what I've seen as far as like people that are close to me goes. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry for them. For sure. Um, I mean, at least uh, it's one of those things that they say that time heals all wounds, but you know, it just is one of those things that you just kind of learn to cover it up with the good moments. So it's not really that the pain ever goes away. It's just that rather than pushing yourself into the negative mind thoughts, you, you bring yourself into the positive things and you try to just remember that person from the positive aspect. And for both of these people, just not to get too heavy into the, the sadder part of the conversation, but rather than having like a typical funeral, we ended up doing like a celebration of life. So it was like a party um, and everybody talked and had a barbecue and just tried to keep the mood elevated. Cause it's just, again, with one of, with one of those things, it's just, it's such a dark, touchy subject that you, you have to try to bring some kind of light to it. And the celebrations I always thought was a good idea. And again, just being able to, for you to be able to make jokes with it is just an awesome thing. I, I, Excellent. Not to keep dwelling on it, but yes, just yeah. great. But um, digging back into your other books, of course, um, I'd love to dig into uh, Mongolian Deathworm particularly. Yeah. I'd love to dive into all of them, but Mongolian Deathworm is one of the ones that fascinates me the most because at least from my research, I feel like it's one of the most probable to exist to the point where like the Mongolian government even acknowledges its existence and the average person, they think of like a Mongolian death worm. They're thinking of tremors, you know, like the movie, yeah, these yeah. giant worms that come out of the sand, but you, you actually dig into the like actual description of these things and they're only. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Like two, three feet long, and they're burrowing in the sand, so it's... It's a lot more probable once you actually start digging into it. I don't know about necessarily the spitting acid aspect of it. Maybe, maybe, because I mean, there are other animals that do have certain abilities that are kind of like that. But um, at least from your research, uh, what did you kind of dive into as far as the Mongolian deathworm and uh, the probability of it actually existing? 
that was the most shocking thing to me. So, uh, uh, like, you hear Mongolian deathworm, and you should have seen the the eyes of the executives at National Geographic light up when you say those words. <laughs> Mongolian deathworm is like, yes, we want to see that. Do a show on that. We don't like anything else. And, um, I mean, I say that mostly joking. National Geographic is a serious organization, and they were absolutely incredible about all of this. Oh, there you go. You yep. got one. Um, I, I won't even try the Mongolian. I'll uh, go it's it's really guttural and really ridiculous all throat speech really really hard for westerners <laughs> oh yeah but um okay so so i thought this was gonna going to be a great legend but that's really it that it, we'd be able to show a culture that's that's underrepresented in the media we'd be able to show an area of the world that's underrepresented and we'd be able to show um you know a really cool story but it is not as far-fetched as you think it is. <laughs> so the other thing that we did is show that all of these wild characteristics that are attributed to the Mongolian death ones do exist in nature. You know, there are animals that shoot blood out of their eyes, you know, horned lizards right mm -hmm. here in, in, you know, Arizona and, and around uh, California. There are, um, there are animals that electrocute other animals, uh, not just electric eels, but, you know, there's a lot of things in the water that use electricity. There's a lot of different fish and there, there are animals um, that do explode. There are animals that fill themselves up with air and explode or fill themselves up with water and explode, which seems crazy. It seems like, why is that a strategy? But it has evolved in, in a number of different species, um, you know, both on land and in the water. Uh, so there, and there are animals that spit. There are animals that spit, you know, if, if not acid, you know, the bombardier beetle does shoot acid, but there are spitting cobras and other things that shoot venom. Um, so each one of these crazy wild characteristics does exist in nature. So you're like, okay, well, that's not as far-fetched as it seemed then. All right. So now let's look at the, um, at the desert itself, the Gobi Desert. And when you picture the Gobi Desert, most people picture this one region called Nemget. And Nemget is uh, like the, the Valley of Dinosaurs, they call it. And it's, it looks like Tatooine. It's, it's just desert for as far as you can see. Wild cliffs, um, sandstone cliffs. You know, there's um, fossilized trees jutting out of the ground. Walking around Nemget, I found a nest of dinosaur eggs just on the ground. Really? There was yeah, there was a nest of dinosaur eggs on the ground. I mean, I wanted to take one so badly and put it in my bag, but um, the running joke was we don't want to do a dual episode of Locked Up Abroad, <laughs> Beast Hunter. So, so we took a GPS location of it and told the um, the museum, the Mongolian Natural History Museum, and they came and picked them up uh, the next day. And then weirdly, there was a story a few years later about some artifact from that region being sold to Nicolas Cage. And I always wondered if he bought the dinosaur oh, I 100% guarantee you, knowing Nicolas Cage and how crazy he is with buying all of his crazy cars and shit, he bought a fucking dinosaur egg. 100%. If, if it was one of the ones that I found, I would be really, I would be so happy, so happy about that. You just got to shoot him a message and be like, hey, if you bought a dinosaur egg, I was the one that found it. You should, you should send me a signature with you... Give me a thumbs up next to it. <laughs> I've got a picture of it here. Do you have this dinosaur? <laughs> but it was just the one. And that's what everyone thinks of. That is what people think of. But the Gobi is huge. The Gobi is massive. And there are parts of the Gobi Desert that are, um, you know, semi-forested. There are parts of the Gobi Desert where when you dig a couple inches under the sand, you get to soil. You get to, like, actual moist soil. 
that um, people wouldn't expect in this region. So, you know, people say, well, it couldn't survive in there. Well, it could, you know, something could survive. So at the end of it, what I got to is that it wasn't as, it, it was feasible, but I I don't think that it's, it's again, it's that problem with a cryptid. I don't think that people would would see whatever animal we find. Um, they wouldn't see it as the death worm because it doesn't do all of the things that the death worm is supposed to do. It doesn't meet all of the characteristics. But I do think it's pretty likely that there's some type of um, either snake or amphispina or some type of, you know, fossorial, like underground creature that uh, has inspired these legends because the the nomads in the area attribute really really amazing wild characteristics to known animals so i found a little lizard called a to a toad-faced agama it's a little lizard about that big totally harmless looks kind of like a horned lizard mm -hmm. And one of our guides, this giant Mongolian wrestler, this huge guy, he goes, don't touch that. Don't go. And I was like, oh, what, are you, like, what are you talking about? Don't go anywhere near. And I was like, what? why? He goes, they eat babies. Like, they don't. Did you see its <laughs> mouth? Like, How is that? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then when you start to dig into that and you start to realize like the, the, you know, it, that, that one's actually pretty sad as to where that legend likely came from. But then there are other ones. Like I found this, um, this little grass snake. And again, it's a grass snake. It's, it's completely harmless, um, but it's very, very fast and strikes really quick. And these guys thought that I was the toughest person in the world because I picked it up. They were like, oh. they wanted to take pictures of them. Like I'm holding the snake and they have one finger touching my shoulder and they're getting a picture. Like they're feeling brave because they're even touching the guy who's holding this snake and it's completely harmless. But their legend is that this snake coils up like a spring and then shoots through a camel and impales the person who's riding on the camel and kills them. I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's kind of break this down a little bit. So if I'm a nomadic herder and I come across a guy who is dead and a camel next to him that's dead, there are likely going to be a lot of wounds around them. Um, they may have even looked like something impaled it, you know, because any carrion, any carrion feeders that are coming in, they're going to try to get to the animal in the easiest way possible, which is usually through an existing opening. So that's probably the butt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's going to look like something exploded. Their stomach might have also exploded because they died in, in the heat and the gases fill it up and cause punctures in there. Now, these little snakes would be all around the body eating the bugs that are feeding on the dead things. So you kind of start to put, and while, while you're riding your camel, you see these little snakes in the grass and they're moving super fast. So you can see where these legends can spring up and this legend of this snake, you know, becoming super dangerous and shooting through and impaling people can pop up. And the Gobi is such a harsh environment and the, the nomads are such, they're, they're Buddhist. They have a, an immense respect for all life. And their basic tenant when dealing with any animal is don't mess with it. <laughs> That's just like, leave it alone. If you don't have to mess with it, don't. So every story about the Mongolian death worm killing someone, every single one of the stories is because someone messed with it. Mm-hmm. So it's like that is their that is their thing, and like these snakes, they don't want you to kill the snake; they just want you to leave it alone. The toad-faced agamas just leave it alone. So they attribute all these things, all these like wild legends and stories to them, essentially just like teaching their kids and teaching everybody, just don't 
don't mess with it. <laughs> You'll be fine. Like that's how you survive in the Gobi is just don't mess with it. That's and what I, I was going to say, even for the sake of kids, just because if you're constantly traveling and you're a nomadic t- type of people, you never know what animals you might come in contact with. You don't know anything new about these new animals you might see. So the best thing to tell your kids is everything is dangerous. If you see an animal, stay the hell away from it. Otherwise, yeah, you never know what could happen. Respect it. Respect it. Just keep your distance. Like, don't kill it. Don't step on it. Don't do anything. Just keep your distance. We were finding ticks. So we had camel ticks on us. These disgusting, horrendous animals, like ticks like that big all over us. And when we pull them off, the, um, the nomads would go, they're just doing what ticks are supposed to do. You know, can we go release them in the desert for you? Like, you don't even want us to kill the ticks. (laughs) (laughs) All right, sure. That's It's crazy to think though, that how much folklore is based off of just respect for the animals and just leaving them alone in general. And I mean, just an idea I was even going to throw as far as the Mongolian deathworm goes is that, you know, there could have been multiple things existing in the area that may have each had one of these characteristics that they know these things as, but maybe because they were all red snakes, for example, even if they were different shades of red, maybe they started collaborating all the stories into one specific thing when, you know, these could have been six different individual things. One had some type of electric ability. One had some type of ability to shoot venom, things like that. And um, yeah, they just connected the stories that way. Or like you said, it could have just been a straight thing where all of these stories were just made up because of just how something happened to be at the time. Like even just, uh, you know, you were talking about the sun and how things would get cooked in the sun, uh, things getting cooked in the sun. Once the body starts expanding and contracting. Yeah. It looks like it melted. So that could have been where the whole acid thing came from is somebody just saw one of these red little snakes that was right next to somebody that died like a week or two prior. And they were just starting to melt from decomposing in the sun. And yeah. it's not like, you know, the middle of like uh, the forest or something like it is here where you're going to have hundreds of big animals picking apart where you're not going to find the big body. If it's all small animals living in the desert, they're only picking little bits apart at a time. Those bodies are going to last significantly longer out there in the conditions than they would like in a forest in North America, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I agree. I tend to think that it was some kind of some kind of spitting cobra um, combined with maybe maybe seeing some type of rattlesnake. You know, that could be the electric the rattle because yeah, that's... we found yeah we found a um uh it's a type of cricket it's a mole cricket uh yeah we found a mole cricket and they um they vibrate and uh as part of their song like they dig a burrow and then they vibrate to project the song out of the burrow and these guys had never seen one before because they don't dig um they don't look for anything underground and they just don't go looking for animals so when they found it they were fascinated had never seen anything like this but one of them felt it vibrate and he said it electrocuted me and i was like ah Mm -hmm. (laughs) i got it I see it. Okay. So I can see where the electric comes from, you know, anything shaking, anything like that. Like it's the same kind of concept. Um, but yeah, I, the, the largest species of lizard in the Gobi desert was only discovered in the late seventies was only named in the late seventies. So I absolutely think that there are animals left to find. And as you said, the, the, the government of Mongolia has said that there are creatures there that are left to find and they do want Mongolian scientists to find them as they should. Um, I think that that is absolutely right to have your, you know, your, your own scientists in your own country, um, you know, doing this research and discovering these new species and being able to name them. So I do think that there are species left to be discovered in Mongolia, and some of them will likely meet some of the characteristics of the death worm. And, and I would love to see the public be excited about that. <laughs> 
I mean, especially considering too that just from your description of the environment with there being soil a couple feet under the ground, it would make the most logical sense for anything to live underneath there because if the soil is moist, there's water for them. Like it doesn't make sense for them to live on the dry top when they can burrow down. So assumably, like who knows how many critters could just all have been adapted to burrow and live underground. There could be hundreds of things that are living under the ground they only pop up here and there and i mean if it's sand on the top too even if things are popping up and just kind of showing their eyes to see what's above it's one of those things too that people could be looking at 300 different animals and all assuming it's the same thing just because they're just seeing a little head pop out and it's covered in sand you can't even make out the color or what it is like and i mean just even for just to throw in another idea with the mongolian death worm they talk about the like red color um obviously there's going to be a lot of things that are scavengers especially in the desert so maybe the red color came from the fact that it was like a type of snake or something that would eat stuff that was already dead and decaying and it would become that blood red color because it would burrow into the body that was already dead and it would get covered in blood in the process and then people would be scared of thinking that this thing killed that person rather than it's just scavenging for food yeah yeah, no, I, I totally, completely agree. There, there was also a fair amount of sandstone, um, and I could see that the red color, you know, being uh, the ability to blend, like just evolving that that same coloration. There was a lot more red than I expected out there. So, yeah. I mean, even just off of that, too, that could be where the red coloration comes from, that a lot of these uh, snakes, for example, that might all together become the Mongolian death worm may not be red at all, but rather just be that toned color from the dust of the sand. And that's why everything comes off that color and it could be a bunch of different colors. Yeah. But, totally um, agree. I also want to dig into uh, some of your other books too. You, I, I don't get to talk about it super duper often as far as like deep sea creatures go. Um, but it's one of the things that fascinates me the most just because there's so much mystery to it and we can barely get under there to begin with. So who knows what could exist down there? I mean, even like you were talking about, uh, we, thought about the Kraken as being a mythological creature. And now we're realizing that it was giant squids and even connecting in with modern folklore that people would talk about these things attacking uh, boats. And what, what does a boat look like from underneath? It kind of looks like a whale. And then you find these things where they'll, they'll have uh, whales that'll have pieces of the beak and tentacle marks stuck on the top of them. So we do know that these giant squids attack whales. And as time's gone on, they could have been closer to the surface because there was less dangerous things on the surface for them to come in contact with. But now that there's whaling ships everywhere, there's submarines, there's all this stuff. They just started kind of pushing down and that's where the folklore came from. But everybody's like, oh, the Kraken, the giant boat attacking thing. But then you logically connect it to they probably thought these boats were whales and they were just attacking them for food because they're more prevalent because things there weren't dangerous things on the surface for them. But yeah, and it, it also could be, um, you know, a, a different species of, so we, we have the, what do we have? We have Architeuthis. So we have the giant squid, the colossal squid, and a couple other amazingly large <laughs> squids. And I'm sure that there are more. That is the one that I think even the most conservative scientists will say that there is almost certainly other species of very large squid. Um, other species are very large squid and other species are very large shark. And they can take so many different forms. Um, if you look at some of the different morphology of squid, like you look at everything from a Dumbo squid to a vampire squid to a colossal squid, um, it, it's amazing the different shapes and the different features that these animals can have. So it could even be a different one that was feeding that was feeding more close to the surface. Um, we do see giant octopus in um, California sometimes take birds. There is actual footage of that, of them coming to the surface and tentacles coming out of the water and grabbing birds and pulling them under and, and eating them. 
And um, the theory has been that squid do that as well. Um, I don't know if it's as well documented, but it's absolutely possible that they were that they were on the surface and then maybe a boat hit one or something like that and the tentacles kind of wrapped around it. There's some footage of a surfer, and I want to say it's in California, I think it's a Humboldt squid, um, like doing that with one of the surfboards, like wrapping a couple tentacles around the surfboard while they go by. Um, squid are crazy aggressive. They are terrifyingly smart animals as well. Are they as so, intelligent as an octopus? Because I know octopus are supposed to be one of the most intelligent animals on the planet. I know squids are obviously close related, but are they as intelligent as an octopus? Yeah, yeah. So they, they, uh, they can also problem solve and they theorize that the intelligence came for, um, as a an after effect of getting developing a large eye. So squid have the largest eyes in the world. Um, they have the largest eye to, to body ratio the, you know, it's like the size of a dinner plate is mm. a squid eye, and they say that a giant squid eye, and they say that um, you know, with that eye, with the the power that was needed to process all the information that that eye was taking in, their brain got larger, had to get larger, and that in turn made them smarter. <laughs> so that's that's the really crazy thing about kind of squid evolution. But they, um, yeah, so they're, they're super smart. They live down in the deepest parts of the ocean. Um, we hardly ever see them. We don't know very much about them. Um, we don't really know their reproductive strategy. We, they, we found a couple baby giant squid just randomly. But um, they don't live very long, which goes against every other intelligent animal. You know, usually the longer, like the smarter an animal is, the longer it's going to live for. Uh, giant squid seem to only live for about five years. So they reach that huge size in about five years, and they're that smart, which goes against so much of what we think we know about biology. If things have a shorter life cycle, does that mean they have the ability to adapt faster? Because I'm just connecting yes. the dots here with the like fact that people were talking about seeing these things attack boats, say in like 1700s, 1800s, like earlier than that. So if that life cycle goes so fast and these things started going down, obviously the pressure is ridiculous down there. Like where the Titanic's at is 6,000 pounds of pressure per inch, which is like putting uh, two cars on each inch of your body. Like that, that's, that's some ridiculous pressure. It's not just one lifetime that something's going to be able to make it down to those depths. So if they're a five-year cycle, five-year cycle, and they just kept going down, 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 down over a hundred year course, could they... Would they have more of an adaptive ability to get down there versus something that has like a hundred year life cycle that would only be able to stay in this area for this time? It doesn't adapt through generations. Oh yeah, I mean they they would be more adapted to life in the deepest parts of the ocean. They they would be able to to move faster to a different type of lifestyle. But actually, getting down to the deepest parts, like like sperm whales, and um, there's a few other. Uh, what are some of the other ones? Gray whales, sperm whales and gray whales will both feed at extreme depths that you would never imagine that an animal would be able to survive at, but they have evolved to do that. And we know that sperm whales eat giant squid. Like that's where we see the, the fights and you see the scars on the whales and you find the beaks in their mouths and you also see, um, yeah, you just see the aftermath of some of that. You'll see some uh, giant squid with like their tentacles ripped off and things like that that are likely from, from those encounters. But um, they could adapt faster 
And yeah, the, the pressures down there are one aspect of it, but another is just the, um, the, the darkness and the inability to find food. Um, the, the, but that I would help assumably, cause it'd be able to take in way more light than any other animal. Right. So they'd be able to see down there better than anything else, just because of the size of their eye and the light intake it can take in. Most likely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And a lot of animals have developed bioluminescence. Um, a lot of animals display a red light which would be invisible to most other creatures because that's not um that's not a light source that that's you know going to be picked up by a lot of other animals so yeah i mean giant squid are are amazing just absolutely in in every possible way they're one of the coolest animals they're my favorite animal um and it's it's just i believe that that is most likely the explanation for um, sea serpents that I think that it's some type of giant squid that either it's the tentacle coming up or it's the shape of the body. They're, they're a thinner, um, you know, squid than we're used to seeing, but there are so many different possibilities for it. But I do think that a cephalopod is the, the most likely um, explanation for a lot of most of the sea serpent sightings. I mean, just to throw in one comment and make another thing too. Um, so as far as what I was saying about like the boats pushing the whales down, I mean, it could have easily been the sperm whales that hunted the ones that are at this level down to extinction. So yeah, they started going down to get more. Further, and, then and then that's when they kept moving down. Connecting in with what you're saying, as far as giant squids go, you hear about all the different things with the plesiosaur and it always has that turn and bend over. So kind of connecting what you're saying about them grabbing birds out from in the water, they could have easily just been sticking a tentacle out and that bend where you think the neck is, is just their almost like their hand going to grab something and come back in. And what you're seeing with the body, the plesiosaur could be like the arm of it trying to reach up and out of the water. Yeah, no, that's absolutely what I think. Um, that, that is, yeah, I I think that that, that explains the the head shape because I believe I, Darren would, would kill me for anything. (laughs) He's, he's the dinosaur guy, but, um, and ancient sea reptiles, plesiosaurs weren't dinosaurs. They were ancient sea reptiles. (laughs) So I, and, um, I, I know, I believe that they couldn't do that with their neck. I believe they couldn't swan their neck the way that people are describing. So that, that like rules that out as, as a possibility, even without getting into the, um, you know, chance of them ever surviving the, the extinction event and everything. But yeah, I think it's most likely a giant squid tentacle. Um, there's a theory that I read a couple years ago that I loved and I had just was just putting the finishing touches on that book when I read this and I was able to put it in where some people are saying that some of the sightings of sea serpents are attributable to a whale's penis, which I think is one of the funniest (laughs) and most amazing and very, very logical um, because you just wouldn't see it very often. And you see this 16 foot thing at a distance sticking up and, you know, and a big dark mass in the water underneath it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you go, sea serpent, I get it. <laughs> I can see that. And I think that's, that's my, that is my favorite cryptid theory that actually makes sense. I mean, just to throw in another one while we're on plesiosaurs, because I found this one fascinating. Have you dug into the whole idea about the uh, Loch Ness monster possibly being like a giant salamander? Yes. So I actually went to Loch Ness. I did a, I did a, um, an episode there for sci-fi that unfortunately never aired, but, um, but it was great. It was really cool. It was a beautiful place. Really good scotch, (laughs) really good haggis, really good food. So I I loved it there. I I would have spent a lot more time there. Um, but yes, I have heard the giant salamander theory. So, I mean, giant salamanders, 
it's not impossible, right? <laughs> that's the missing spot as far as Europe goes, but that's like the only landmass that doesn't have a giant salamander. Right, right. And, and and it is a cold water lake. Like it does meet the criteria that you would think of for a giant salamander. What killed it for me is they, they did eDNA. They did an eDNA sample in, um, in the lock and they didn't come up with the amphibian DNA that you would expect to see with something like that. They came up with a lot of eels, a lot more eel DNA than they expected. Um, so there, there's always the possibility of bigger eels and, um, you know, salmon and other relatives of salmon as, as most of the DNA. The lock is not a very productive environment. There really isn't a whole lot in there. Um, it's, it's pretty murky tannic water, um, that not a whole lot can survive in, but, uh, that's kind of where I go with the salamanders too, is that they take everything in with their skin. So if the water's really, really dirty, then it's not going to be able to survive there because it takes in everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're in North America, we have hellbenders, right? So we've got the hellbender salamanders and they're in really, really clean, fast moving streams is where you find them. And the giant salamanders in China and Japan, same thing. Very, very clean, fast-moving streams. Like it, it's really that fast water going over them, so they're able to get, um, they're able to absorb the oxygen that they need, and they're they're in that really, you know, very, very clean environment. The um, we do have like so the the Lake Titicaca frog is a really big species of frog that has the weird folded skin and everything else, and that is in a more stagnant environment. So there, there are some examples of amphibians um, developing bigger sizes and getting, um, you know, the kind of weird skin patterns that you might mistake for something else. Uh, but I, I'd have a tough time going with the giant salamander. I like it as a theory, but I'd have a tough time with it. In general, I think the Loch Ness Monster is kind of problematic because the legends that go back, like if you go all the way back to where, you know, it was being cited by the Catholic church in the 1700s and, and things like that, the sightings really bear no resemblance to what people describe the Loch Ness monster as now. A lot of them are very deer like a lot of them happen miles inland uh, by hunting parties. And they're just they're It really more took off in, in the modern era that we started seeing these. And then we had these other legends that people have kind of retrofitted in and said that these are sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, but they really look nothing like it. They just happen to occur in the same kind of area. I mean, part of the problem too with the Loch Ness Monster is everybody has this image of what it looks like, but it's common knowledge, at least for like the cryptid community, that the main Loch Ness Monster photo that everybody sees was a little model that somebody made. Like it's a completely false photo. It's a hoax and everybody knows it, but so many researchers are still using that as a basis, even though they know it's a hoax. So it's like, I don't get why you're still looking for that profile when that's clearly not the correct profile. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought if there if there was anything, it, I, and I think there is something to the sightings. I shouldn't say if there was. I think that there, there is something to every sighting. I don't believe that everyone who cites something is just lying or making it up. But I think with the Loch Ness Monster, it's almost certainly a combination of other known animals that they're seeing. Um, I've been kayaking next to moose, and when a moose pops up out of the water, it's one of the weirdest, like, off-putting sights. You just don't <laughs> expect to see that. And there are deer in the area. The deer would swim. They would, you know, eat some of the algae and things like that. So some of it could be a deer popping up out of the water. Um, some of it could be sightings of seals. If a seal happened to make its way in there, I'd find that a lot more plausible than, um, than some of the other theories. Some of it are probably floating wood. 
Honestly, mm-hmm. it's probably just logs that are rolling in the water and look weird. Some of them can be birds, um, you know, giant, or not giant, but, um, you know, it's very hard to judge distance over water. So I think it's, it's Loch Ness Monster. I go with a lot of known species. I mean, half the problem with researching that now, too, is that all the main stories happened so long ago that if that, that whatever that original thing was that people were seeing is more than likely dead by now. So it's like you'll never fully understand where what started that. And then after that, it was people playing telephone, people thinking they were seeing stuff. So it's like beyond the original um, sightings of it, it's like you kind of have to take everything else with a grain of salt. Because once you get something in somebody's head that something's in an area, people are going to see that no matter what. So it's like if you tell somebody that there's Sasquatch in an area, even if it's a teenager and it's clearly a teenager, not a Sasquatch, people want to see a Sasquatch. They're going to see that. So same goes for Loch Ness Monster. People want to see the Loch Ness Monster. It's dark. They're on a boat at night and they see a log floating by. Next thing you know, that's the Loch Ness Monster. And there's this whole story about how it came up and tried to flip them out of their boat and everything just because that's what people want to see, you know? It makes for a great story at the pub mm-hmm. that night. It's the, it's exactly that. Like, oh, yeah, we saw it. We saw it. And then everyone gathers around. You all have a scotch. And by the end of the night, you're right. The story has become something very, very different than what actually happened. People tend to forget how often uh, fisherman tales and things that pertain to water quickly end up turning into stories in the bar. And when you have a story in the bar, it's very quick that that takes on a whole life of its own because more often than not, somebody will tell a story in a bar. Somebody will overhear that story in the bar. Then they'll tell somebody that this story about that they heard in the bar. And then that person says, Oh, my friend heard this story that he heard in the bar. And then you're already three generations playing telephone and you're guaranteed to be far off from the original encounter that that person said on top of the fact that they're fishermen. And there's a, there's a really good joke about it. If you're familiar with the show, the mighty boosh, uh, the episode with, uh, old Greg, where pretty much they say it doesn't matter what happened on the water. It's how you tell the tale. So (laughs) it can be a very basic fishing story like they're mentioning in that show, but you got to turn it into some crazy fisherman tale because that's the stories that people want to hear when they're sitting at the bar after a long day of being out on the water. (laughs) No, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And that, that really does feel completely right for, for Loch Ness. But it is a beautiful place, and I would highly, highly encourage anyone who has the opportunity to go and check it out. And uh, you can stay in a place, um, you know, there, there's a, a beautiful place right on the lock that you can stay at. You can see it every morning and every night. It's just, it's, it's gorgeous and really good food and drinks. <laughs> of course they got those good drinks. Just to throw in just a little piece of information, because I, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I find it fascinating. The whole idea with like champagne, for example, that it's region specific. That's what scotch is. It's region specific. So it's like you can have scotch, but you're not actually having real scotch unless it's specifically from this area. Because realistically, it's just it's whiskey, but it's from a specific area. So it's like yeah. if you want to ever say that you've tried authentic scotch, you can say, oh, I've had a million different scotches, but you've never had scotch scotch until you've had scotch in this area in scotland yep yeah (laughs) and it's it's the best it really is it's amazing and just the whole place i mean i i i loved it there i loved i I got to meet with adrian um like the he's the the actual like the the perfect loch ness monster researcher he uh you know he looks like he just stepped out of a book he's got like the long gandalf beard (laughs) and kind of carried the the staff and had you know traditional scottish clothes and everything just it's so cool and every bar that you go into they're burning peat it just smells great it's 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 a beautiful spot unfortunately no Loch Ness monster but um well worth the trip 
but I'm sure that there's a lot of other crazy, interesting folklore you could dig into that you might actually find something in the area, but maybe not specifically the Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) Scottish wildcats. Scottish wildcats are are almost extinct, um, but you could still find them. I mean, they they look like kittens, but they are super aggressive. Really, really. But they look like house cats, but they are not. They're Scottish wildcats. It's a completely separate species. Um, You can also find adders. I found an adder while I was there, the only venomous snake in, uh, in England. Found a hedgehog. That was really cool for Americans. Oh, um, hell yeah. All the, all the Scottish people thought I was nuts at getting excited about a hedgehog, <laughs> but that was pretty cool. I've only seen these in pet stores, man. You don't understand. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Slow worms. They have slow worms there. Uh, legless lizards. Yeah, it's it's one of those things too. I want to make a comment about it, but everybody's scared of big animals, but it's funny because it's like the big animals rely on like, not necessarily animals, but like tarantulas, snakes, all that kind of stuff. The big stuff relies on power. The small stuff is what you need to be scared of because it doesn't have the power and the, the most venomous, like scorpions, for example, the most venomous tarantulas, they're all the smallest breeds. So again, everybody's scared of the big stuff, but you should be scared of the small stuff. The big stuff, you can probably overpower because it's relying on its power in order to get its food. <laughs> yep, absolutely. No, and, and anytime that I'm traveling in really remote locations, I want to sleep somewhere that has giant spiders. I want to find the biggest spiders that I can possibly find. And that's where I want to be sleeping because I know they're, they're essentially harmless and they're probably eating any of the really bad stuff. (laughs) Go hang out with some Goliath bird eaters. Those things are crazy. Like the size of like a dinner plate. (laughs) Yeah. We used to sell those at the reptile store when I used to work there. Talk about crazy stuff. That's what got me into all this like weird animal stuff was that, you know, I was the digging into snakes, uh, scorpions, uh, lizards, all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, People have such a misunderstanding of these things because people cover up so much stuff with fear. And when people cover up stuff with fear, it ends up creating folklore, it ends up creating stories. So it's just like you're saying, it's bringing knowledge to people of these things that are scary because once, honestly, the reason why things are scary is because it's a lack of understanding. But once you have a full understanding of these things, they're not scary. Like as for me, just because I came from a background dealing with reptiles and stuff, I'll pick up a reptile all day, but I know which ones to pick up and which ones not to mess with because of just having that common knowledge of it. Leave the small stuff alone, pick up the big stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I used to volunteer at a reptile place too. There's a place right around me called uh, New England Reptile Distributors or NERD, N-E-R-D. <laughs> and uh, I love it. I got to I got to play with some of the coolest animals I've ever seen. Everything from Nile crocodiles to Brazilian water cobras to king cobras to um, uh, puff adders. I mean, just so much amazing stuff there. It's a great experience. Oh yeah, dude. Same thing for me, man. I got to hold a bunch of animals that people normally wouldn't even have. And we had traders that would come in and we had one guy specifically that used to have a pet hyena that he used to do like, sh- like educational shows and stuff with. So it's like, you know, just because of working at that reptile store, you know, I've can say that I've gotten to pet a hyena once, like that's awesome. just the, we had like prairie dogs, for example, there. So I know how prairie dogs act. So it's like every morning you'd come in and those prairie dogs are smart. They'll get out. So it's like, no matter what type of enclosure you keep them in, their main focus at night is to get out of stuff. So every morning that we'd have prairie dogs, we'd come in there and you'd have to chase them all down and no matter how many times i tell people that are trying to buy these prairie dogs like every night you're gonna have to find this thing they wouldn't believe me they come in the next day and be like i lost the prairie dog in my house be like dude i told you they're gonna break out every night you gotta figure (laughs) out where they like to hide at because they're not gonna disappear on you they're gonna find a little comfortable hole to hide in if you have a little hole in your house they're gonna find it and that's where they're gonna be every single time (laughs) that's awesome because we used to have a a, like a cave for our tortoises and they'd always be hiding in the back of that i knew where they were gonna go (laughs) yep 
But that's pretty amazing. I can't believe that a prairie dog would want to be running around a place that has that many reptiles. Though, that that might have been the reason why. They're probably freaking out because they could see all the big snakes. So rather than take their yeah. chances, they want to be somewhere enclosed and hidden they felt in control yeah instead of in a glass tank where they just feel open and exposed to everything because of course you know they were like the main focal point we had them in so they were in a tank right in the center of the store with all glass so it's just fully exposed those things were not comfortable and i'd always have to tell the uh, owner of the store that like you need to get a bigger tank a taller tank like you got to give them room to be able to burrow and dig into stuff and we just have pine bedding in the bottom of a tank and they get out every night i'm just like bro you got to take in their characteristics into consideration. Like if you give them something to hide in, they're going to hide and they're going to be content. But if you don't give them anything, they're going to get out because they, they're going to find somewhere to hide. That's what they do. Yeah. yeah. And then we're going to be looking for them every morning. Yep. That's pretty great. <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, you said you only had about an hour or so. So I am sorry. Yeah. I'd love to uh, hopefully have you back on this show and Bizarre Encounters in the future. Um, great. But just for the sake of kind of wrapping stuff up, leaving on a high note, um, I always like to do words of wisdom. So if there is any words of wisdom you could bestow on the listeners, what would it be? So I think um, we as humans tend to think that we know everything and we don't. (laughs) So I think that it's just always keeping an open mind and not writing off anything that just because it sounds absurd, like try to find that kernel of truth and try to find that connection with the the person who's sharing this with you because they're telling it to you for a reason and uh, they're, they're, you know, looking to share something with you. So be excited about it, be enthused. And um, again, just, we, we don't know everything. There's a lot out there to still discover. And I think just keeping that in mind is, uh, is really, really important, especially in 2023 when um, everyone seems to know everything about everything. <laughs> so Hey, some of the smartest philosophers through time have said that you will never start to understand anything until you understand that you know absolutely nothing. Absolutely. Because <laughs> you can know true. stuff for a fact, but as soon as you start seeing weird characteristics, if you try to keep yourself in that box, you're never going to discover what needs to get discovered. But especially with animals from your experience, you know, as soon as you start taking into consideration those little tweaks, all of a sudden it steers you down a path of what it logically is and keeps you away from this safeguarding inside of the folklore concept that a lot of cryptid researchers do that it's has to fit this box. Otherwise, it isn't what I'm looking for, like we were talking about earlier in the show. But again, as soon as yeah. you start taking into consideration other stuff and realizing that you don't know that for a fact, because it is a cryptid you never know what you might discover for sure absolutely <laughs> and uh for anybody that wants to come and find your books uh wants to come and find you uh where can they pick up your books at and where can they come and find you at so uh i am instagram and threads now that that new thing that just happened yesterday <laughs> so at pat's bane um is where th- those are the social media sites that i'd be the most active on and um, patspain.com and the books are all available on amazon or any of your local bookstores they probably don't carry them but they can order them for you <laughs> <laughs> and they, they are all available on amazon so it's just patspain the name of the series is on the hunt um and yeah yeah you'll be able to find them all on there well, I uh, really appreciate you making the time to come on today. This has been an awesome conversation. This is some of my favorite stuff to dig into. And thanks again for making the time to come on and having this conversation with me. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. If you guys enjoyed the show, and come on, I know you guys definitely enjoyed the show. Don't forget to leave a review or rating for the show on iTunes or Spotify. It's an awesome way to make it so that the show gets seen by some new people. 
And another way to help the show get seen by some new people, don't forget to uh, share this episode with any friends, family, or anybody else that you think might enjoy it. doesn't even matter if you're friends with them. If you guys got some kind of common ground, you guys talk about the weird stuff once in a while, throw them an episode, never know what it might do. They might pass it on to another person, pass it on to another person, start a chain of events, and next thing you know, you got your whole entire office all listening to the show, and all of you guys can just talk about podcasts together. Come on, that'd be great, but it'll never happen unless you pass the show on through word of mouth with a friend family, or coworker. And of course, if anybody wants to get a hold of me for any reason whatsoever, be it you want to contribute to some art to something, uh, you want to sit down and have a conversation, you want to share your experiences, you want to talk about some weird shit, you want to be a guest on the show, uh, any of those, you guys can message me on Instagram, which is the social media that I'm the most active on, or you guys can email me at increaseallrealitypodcast at outlook.com, or you guys can go to the link tree, fill out the submission form, and of course, that will go directly to my email, Make sure that you guys check your spam and junk folders. Make sure nothing gets missed because I do respond to every single message or email that you guys send me. Everything that I've mentioned is available off of the link tree, which is L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E slash inquiries of our reality podcast. Or you guys can make it easy for yourself. Go down to the show description, click the link and follow it to whatever you happen to be looking for. And with that, hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.